This is The Resident Review, a plastic surgery podcast. This is a platform designed for education of plastics, hand, and craniofacial surgery trainees from medical student to master surgeon. Our episodes take you through high-yield topics along with experts in the field in order to maximize your knowledge and refine your techniques. If you like what you hear, be sure to visit our website, theresidentreview.com, for episodes, outlines, resources, and more. And stay tuned after the episode for a brief message from our sponsors. Hi, and welcome back to The Resident Review. I'm Rosie, and I'm here with Tori, and we are going to be doing another lecture from our quick hit series. We are working on local anesthesia today. This comes up a lot on the like core principles part of the exam. So mm-hmm. despite it not yeah. being plastic surgery specific, it is definitely going to be on the in-service. Mm-hmm. All, All right, Tori, you want to start us off? I would love to. Let's talk a little bit about physiology and pain to get started. Um, so first and foremost, we have our different pain fibers. Um, these are the A fibers, the delta fibers, and the C fibers. Um, these pain fibers are usually blocked first with local anesthesia, followed by temperature, then touch, proprioception, and then motor function. And then we'll talk about the different types of local. So there's ester amide linkage um, in terms of the actual chemistry of the local anesthetic. The esters are ending with ane, so cocaine, procaine, tetracaine. They all all end with ane. One eye. In them. Total. Yep. Um, These are hydrolyzed by pseudocolonesterase into PABA, that's the metabolite. That can cause an allergy and it may require IM or IV epi, and it is not dependent on hepatic or renal function for clearance. The amides are the ones with two eyes, lidocaine and bupivacaine, the ones we really commonly use. These are metabolized by hepatic microsomal enzymes and metabolites that are excreted by the kidney. Going a little bit more into local anesthetic, we'll talk about doses. Um, so in general, epinephrine prolongs the duration of action of an anesthetic because it causes vasoconstriction. Bupivacaine has a longer duration due to protein binding. It's a lipid solubility correlates with potency. We often use liposomal bupivacaine as well, which has a really long duration that's expiral. And then the max dosage is commonly tested for all of these local anesthetics. Bupivacaine's is 2.5 mg per kg. Cocaine, less common, um, <laughs> but does have a max dose of 1.5 mg per kg if used. Lidocaine, super common. Use this, actually use this today to block <laughs> someone's digit. Um, 4.5 mg per kg is going to be your max dose of lidocaine plane. And then lidocaine with epi is going to be seven mgs per kg as your max dose. That comes up all the time. Uh, infiltration of tumescent can tolerate a higher lidocaine dose due to the rate of absorption. It just takes longer um, given all the fluid that it's in. And the maximum concentration is occurring at eight to 12 hours after infiltration. Your max dose of that for that is going to be around 35 to 55 mgs per kg. So significantly higher than the max doses of just giving it plain. It is okay, actually told someone this today as well, to use lidocaine with epi in the hands and feet. So that has been uh, shown in studies to be safe. You want to wait 25 minutes after injection for the lowest risk of bleeding or the highest vasoconstrictive effect in these areas. And this has been tested in the context of wide awake hand surgery or well, there's all these different, uh, well, 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 
wide awake <laughs> anesthesia technique. The reversal agent for lidocaine is phentolamine. And then for topical anesthesia, you can use EMLA cream and you have to wait an hour for that to work. Briefly talking about a couple of blocks that have come up on the in-service, um, specific ones. These are not, this is not an all-encompassing by any means, um, but the infraorbital nerve uh, block is the ipsilateral, so the side you want to be blocked, central incisor to two bicuspids. So you want to kind of go between those teeth. I like to use the, if you palpate right next to the nose, the little like indent um, in the maxilla, and then you kind of can shoot for that with your needle as you're going above those teeth into the mucosa. Um, that's the way I learned to do it. And then for tap blocks, this is in the triangle of Pettit. It's the triangle surrounded by or bounded by the latissimus dorsi, the external oblique and the iliac crest. You wanna infiltrate between the internal oblique and transversus. So you wanna do like pop, pop, two pops through the fascia. Um, we use this commonly in our deep flap uh, dissection for those patients, but also commonly comes up the plane that it's in on the in-service exam. They love the borders. Yeah, they love that. Um, the pecs blocks. So pec one um, is between the lateral and medial pectoral nerves, and it is between the pec major and the pec minor muscles. The pec two block is getting at the intercostal and intercostobrachial nerves. This is between the pec minor and serratus that you're going to infiltrate local anesthesia. And then the serratus block gets the long thoracic and thoracodorsal, and that is between the serratus and the latissimus. Briefly talking about some complications, lidocaine toxicity. So when we're talking about all these maximum doses, it's for a reason. If you go over those doses or for whatever reason, inject into the bloodstream, which you also don't want to do, you can cause a risk of lidocaine toxicity. Uh, this is treated with 20% lipid emulsion. This is commonly tested. And then in terms of signs and symptoms of lidocaine toxicity, these include dizziness, agitation, lethargy, tinnitus, metallic taste, perioral paresthesias, slurred speech, euphoria, hypotension, and bradycardia. Local anesthetic toxicity can also cause hypotension and cardiac arrest. And we mentioned this before, but again, because this comes up on test questions, lidocaine and tumescent um, those levels peak eight to 12 hours after you infiltrate. So it may not be an immediate effect and you may have a patient coming back after their surgery or seen, you know, post-operatively having some of these effects. And then blood pressure is the least affected by lidocaine levels. So you will not often see hypotension, but you will see a lot of these other things um, mm -hmm. more commonly. They like to test on, they really like chest and lidocaine toxicity. So it'll be like somebody who presents like eight hours later after surgery to an emergency room. And the things that really set it apart are the tinnitus and metallic taste. So I feel like those are the little nuggets that come up most frequently in question stems that yeah. chew you into lidocaine toxicity. And, um, and you have to, yeah, lipid emulsion and monitor them um, on tele. They never just ask you what the problem is. No, <laughs> be simple. <laughs> okay. Moving into the operating room, a little bit about conscious sedation. So this is commonly used for procedures and hypotension is common during this and you can treat it first with IV fluids. And then if fluid is unsuccessful or inadequate, go with pressors. In terms of the substances we use, uh, one of the common ones is ketamine. It's IV, it has a short duration and there is a lower incidence of laryngospasm and vomiting. 
the ideal conscious sedation is still midazolam and fentanyl because it has strong analgesia and amnesia properties and it has minimal respiratory depression, but ketamine is common like with kids, especially. Complications in the OR. So one of the things that be cognizant of is malignant hyperthermia. This trait is inherited in an, in an um, autosomal dominant manner. Uh, patients with this condition present with a hypermetabolic reaction to anesthetic gases like halothane and fluorine, isoflurane, sevoflurane, and desflurane. And they're also susceptible to succinylcholine. So the symptoms of malignant hyperthermia are often tested, and it's a conglomeration of symptoms that just seem like something is very dangerously off. So generally they'll have tachycardia and they'll have muscle rigidity is really common. That's usually what I notice in the question stem. You will want to make sure that you turn off the gas immediately. Um, they will be hyperthermic. So you'll start the, you'll start a cooling process and give them saline and give them gantrolene. That is the, um, they love testing this on the interviews. Yeah. Big, big gantrolene people. Um, you can have rhabdomyolysis after this condition. This results in shock. You'll have hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, metabolic acidosis. You can get compartment syndrome from it because of the swelling and acute renal failure. Last year, they tested this because they were asking specifically about the order in which you treat this. So once you acknowledge or know that they or suspect, I guess, that they have malignant hyperthermia, the first thing you do is stop the gas. Yes. Very and important. All those other things. And then a complete pivot to operating room fires. <laughs> Fire needs fuel and oxidizer and an ignition source. And it's very common in the operating room because you have open oxygen sources like masks and nasal cannulas. So the fuels include like alcohol cleansers, preps, and then um, drapes. And the ignition is the cautery generally. And the oxidizer is like a nitrous oxide or oxygen, obviously. Got to make sure that prep is dry. Make sure the prep is dry. Three minutes. Moving on to operative positioning. Lithotomy position requires leg holders that incorporate heel support to prevent compression injury to the peroneal nerve. Arm abduction should be limited to no greater than 90 degrees and dorsal extension of the arm should be avoided. You want to decrease pressure on the postcondylar group of the humerus. So you can position the arm in supination or kind of a neutral position. And when the patient is prone, the neck should be well stabilized in a neutral, non-extended position. And then looking at infectious complications from things that happen to us in the, um, in the operating room. So if you have a needle stick from hep C, from a hep C positive patient, it's recommended that follow-up retesting is done at six weeks, three months, and six months of the exposure date. For prophylactic antibiotics, ASPS has actually published a consensus statement for systemic antibiotic prophylaxis for clean contaminated, contaminated, or dirty plastic surgery cases of the head and neck or synaptic of hand and skin. Antibiotics are also indicated for clean cases of the breast, but other clean cases do not benefit from antibiotic prophylaxis. I feel like they've tested this a lot mm -hmm. because they'll bring you like a clean case that's not breast and you'll like automatically think, oh, got to give ANSEP. And then the mm -hmm. answer is really no prophylactic antibiotics. And then vice versa, they'll give you like a mascopexy or a reduction and they're looking for Antibiotics. Antibiotics for phylaxis. So, antibiotics and then um, a surgical site infection, also commonly tested. This is something that happens within 30 days and is skin and subcutaneous tissues only. So, you'll see perineal drainage, positive cultures, and diagnosis by surgeon are all important to diagnosis in SSI. All right, moving on for post operative considerations. 
the ERAS protocol, which is early recovery after surgery, this protocol includes local or regional anesthesia as well as oral pain medication. So that's the things like we were talking about earlier, like liposomal bupivacaine. And then pregabalin can decrease narcotic needs after breast surgery because it's a GABA analog. Postoperative nausea and vomiting, patient risk factors include female sex, history of postoperative nausea and vomiting, non-smokers, young age, the type of surgery that they're having or BMI over 30. And then some of the anesthesia factors that can influence postoperative nausea and vomiting include opioids, inhalational anesthetics, nitrous oxide, and then general versus regional anesthetic. You can give a prepotent 40 milligrams orally one to three hours prior to the induction of anesthesia because this is a high efficacy against opioid nausea specifically. And then other postoperative drugs we use for nausea include like Zofran, Zofran droperidol, metoclopramide, promethazine, haloperidol, and dexamethasone. The dexamethasone is used mostly for refractory nausea. And then the last post-operative consideration we have is post-operative delirium. This is acute brain dysfunction that is characterized by changes in levels of consciousness and attention or disorganized thinking. It can be hyperactive or hypoactive and specifically uh, elderly patients are at risk. So avoid benzos in them and antihistamines as well. All right, let's talk about some physiology that we are commonly tested on, but routinely don't think about. <laughs> um, first, we'll start with pulmonology. One of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Um, we have been tested on quite a few different categories. So we'll talk about those um, kind of in a random order. So first we'll talk about the respiratory quotient. Um, this is an indirect measurement of calorimetry. I don't know when I would ever use this, but in case the insert has me ready. So this is calculated <laughs> by your uh, ventilation CO2 over O2. So it's a ratio of the carbon dioxide that you're producing and the oxygen that you're consuming. The ideal ratio for that is just under one. So 0.8 to 0.9. If your value is less than 0.8, meaning that your oxygen consumed is much higher than the carbon dioxide produced, you are being, or your patient is underfed. And then if it's over one, that suggests overfeeding or lipogenesis. So this is all like metabolic um, measurements and how adequately one is like at equilibrium in their metabolic, uh, like state metabolic anabolic Mm. ratio minute ventilation. This is calculated, um, by multiplying your respiratory rate by your tidal volume. So it's the amount of air gas that's displaced during each quiet breath. Residual volume is the volume of air still remaining in the lungs after the most forcible exhalation. Your dead space or dead volume is air or gas that does not take part in gas exchange. So areas of the lung that are not um, participating in diffusion. And then your inspiratory capacity is the volume of air that enters the lungs during the most forcible inspiration possible. The vital capacity is the total amount of air that can be forcibly expired from the most forcible inspiration possible. So... Yeah, there's that chart that mm-hmm. I wish I never was going to see again after it, I took yeah. one. It is that. I feel like it's and much I'm easier when you're not very good at memorizing it, but I think I have to draw it out every time. Yeah, just think about it and always remember that your residual volume is just what's residual. That's the only one I can ever remember <laughs> unless I memorize it. So I too will be memorizing this and I. <laughs> 
Now we'll move to some cardiac and hematology topics and concerns. Mm -hmm. Fun facts. For cardiac concerns, um, we'll talk a little bit about just cardiac considerations preoperatively. So drug eluting stents, which I feel like 90% of my patients Mm -hmm. somehow have, even though they tell me they've never had surgery. Those patients Plavix. should continue both aspirin and Plavix throughout surgery. There's actually a recent paper in PRS that we presented at Journal Club about this as well. Um, so the benefits of continuing those agents through surgery uh, outweighs the risks of bleeding during the case. So you should continue those. Um, you want to have your patients have a METS, which is like an activity rating of how much like physical activity they can do greater than four. I can remember this because like it used to say Mets on the treadmill. When I first started using the treadmill, I was like, I don't know what this is. And then now the anesthesia people put it in their note all the time. And I was like, Oh, I got Mets. (laughs) Um, it's, it definitely stands for some like explanation of physical activity. Um, I don't know what it is. So Mets, not the cancer kind. If you have a patient with atrial fibrillation and that has existed for greater than 48 hours, so not new onset AFib, then they need a TEE prior to cardioversion if you're planning to cardiovert them. We have a ton of patients, I feel like, who are in rate-controlled AFib that they have an appropriate anesthesia workup preoperatively, and they don't need cardioversion. But if that's something you're considering, then you need to make sure um, that they have a TEE. Fun fact, METS is metabolic equivalence. There you go. That's it. It's not as exciting as I thought it would be. It's awesome as I was hoping, but sorry. Meds greater than four for surgery. Mm -hmm. If you have a patient with von Willebrand's factor or factor eight deficiency, then you want to give desmopressin prior to your case. This mostly works by stimulating the release of von Willebrand's factor, and that helps overall improve clotting. We were tested on that last year mm-hmm. and patients who have an acute MI in worst case scenario should receive the following. And I'd always remember this from the guy on the, that website, what, whose videos I used to watch. I got nothing. Oh. Mona Bash. Mona Bash. Mona Bash. Wow. Morphine, oxygen. Nitrogen. Nitroglycerin. 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 <laughs> Not nitrogen. <laughs> nitroglycerin. Aspirin. Um, you want to make sure that their electrolytes are appropriate and supplement them as needed for potassium greater than four, magnesium greater than two, um, in order to prevent life-threatening arrhythmias that can happen after a heart attack. So those are all good things to know for pre and post-operative cardiac considerations. For arrhythmias, um, if you have a patient with an AV block, you're going to have a prolonged PR interval. For first degree AV block, it'll just be prolonged. For second degree AV block, you have those two different types. Um, The one where it like gets prolonged, prolonged and prolonged and then drops. And then you have the one that just intermittently kind of fails to conduct. And so you have dropped QRS complexes and that's your sign that there's an AV block. Mm -hmm. Multifocal atrial tachycardia. This is abnormal automaticity. So it demonstrates irregular heart rate and rhythm. So you have three or more morphologically different P waves, and you're somewhere in the range of 110 to 140 beats. AFib, this is so common. It's suddenly, mm-hmm. you know, I, I can't even count the number of patients that I had who ended up with <laughs> post-op AFib or pre-op AFib. And so you're looking for this normal complex tachycardia without P waves, and it's going to be irregularly irregular. And that's compared to A flutter, which is typically in a two to one ratio. And it's evidenced by that 
more sawtooth looking um, flutter wave compared to AFib, which just looks like mumbo jumbo. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, that's cardiology. Technical cardiology term. Um, in terms of your veno venous thromboembolism risk, you want to use the Caprini risk assessment model. ASPS VT task force recommends that those patients who are undergoing elective plastic surgery who have a score of seven or greater should have VTE risk reduction strategies that includes, but is not limited to limiting OR time, weight reduction, discontinuation of any hormone therapy preoperatively, and then early postoperative mobilization, as well as consideration of extended use of low molecular weight heparin. If you have patients who are extremely high risk, um, in these models, Major plastic surgery cases going over 60 minutes should undergo some type of VTE prevention. Caprini risks that are between three and six and major surgery should are recommended to have low molecular weight heparin or unfractionated heparin um, for those cases. And then highest risk factors are including age greater than 75, prior DVT, PE, or embolic stroke history, positive factor five Leiden, HIT history, elevated anticardiolipin or serum homocysteine or prothrombin or lupus anticoagulant. So um, some of these uh, syndromes that are associated with autoimmune diseases and then congenital required thrombophilia or family history of thrombosis. And generally speaking, these patients should be worked up with a hematologist preoperatively for recommendations. In terms of anticoagulants, so they test us on these all the time, the mechanisms mm -hmm. of the anticoagulants. So we're going to go through them quickly. Rivaroxaban or Xarelto, I remember that this has an X in it. So it's a factor 10A or XA uh, inhibitor, and that helps convert prothrombin to thrombin normally. So you have less thrombin because it in inhibits factor 10A. This is contraindicated in renal failure, and it does have a reversal agent now in DEXA which has two X's in it. So all of the X's um, is the reversal agent for rivaroxaban or Xarelto. Aspirin interferes with platelet function. Patients who are undergoing uh, minor cutaneous surgery are at no greater risk of hemorrhagic complications than those without who do not take aspirin. So as we alluded to at the beginning, you can safely continue aspirin for these patients, especially if the benefits outweigh the risks in terms of their history. Coumadin or warfarin affects vitamin K dependent factors. So I just remember this is 1972. It's 10, 9, 7, and 2 in terms of the factors that are affected. And there's lots of issues with warfarin and different foods that people eat and how they uh, basically regulate these factors. So that sometimes comes up on standardized tests. Mm -hmm. Heparin prevents clot propagation by blocking thrombin mediated activation of fibrinogen to fibrin. NSAIDs, they, these inhibit COX-1 and COX-2 and production of thromboxane A2. And then treatment of DVT slash PE includes IV heparin empirically, which hopefully we all know. Great. A great review of all the hematology and the cardiac concerns that we often see both in real life and on the test. So going into some other medical complications that you might see. Redman syndrome looks like generalized discomfort and, and an erythematous rash that involves the face, neck, and upper torso, and it is commonly caused by vancomycin administration. Treatment is antihistamines, and then you can resume the vancomycin at a slow rate once the symptoms improve. It's not a, an antibody-mediated reaction, 
So that's why you can resume the bank. Anaphylaxis is treated with epinephrine intramuscularly. As soon as the diagnosis is made, you wanna give 0.01 mix per kg of epi. You should, also, you should also initiate measures of ABC, so airway, breathing, and circulation when you're monitoring these patients. We'll talk a little bit more about immunosuppression when we talk about transplantation, but people can get CKD from immunosuppression. So this is a systemic complication. We'll talk about it in the medical complications section. Usually CKD from immunosuppression is from calcineurin inhibitors. So pre-transplant treatment includes treating renal conditions, avoiding hypotension and hypertension, limiting nephrotoxic drugs and limiting IV contrast, and then avoiding hypovolemia and ischemia time. And then postoperatively for somebody with CKD, you want to decrease the trough levels for goals and then treat the hypertension, treat hyperglycemia, and again, avoid IV contrast. So just protect your kidneys. Protect normal. Protect the beans. In normal renal failure, um, you can have AKI and diabetics. So you'll want to give isotonic crystalloids instead of colloids, have strict glucose control, and then don't give diuretics or dopamine and give them a low protein diet. For the FEMA, which is important in with these renal patients. And sometimes, sometimes, sometimes important on the in-service. Sometimes, sometimes important on the in-service. It is the formula that you must remember. Secret urinal. Oh. This is, I hope that this helps someone else because it does not help me. It still doesn't help me, I'll be no. honest. Maybe, maybe when you look at it, when you write it. So it's the, the top of the equation is serum creatinine times urine sodium. And then it's all over urine creatinine times serum sodium times 100. And if that is less than 1%, it is suggestive of pre-renal disease. And if it is over 2%, it is indicative of salt-wasting ATN. So it's basically how much salt your body is, how much salt in your body is like clearing. All right. And then free body water. Another fun fact that we got tested on. Um, and the amount of free water required to bring the sodium back to normal. The calculation is one minus the sodium over 140. All I hear is like some internal medicine attending when I was on rounds as a med student being like, sodium is just indicative of your total body water. Total body it's water. not about how much sodium you have. Being yeah. hypernatremic isn't about how much sodium you have. It's about being dehydrated. Yeah. That, that, that hits. Apparently so, it hits service writers as well. This is how many bottles of water you need. One minus the sodium over 140. All right, acute hyperkalemia. Treat this first. So too much potassium. Treat it first with insulin and glucose. Drive that potassium into the cells. Right? Yeah, into the cells. And then you can give calcium gluconate. And if somebody has EKG changes, that is a little bit more dangerous. So you want to give the calcium gluconate first. You can also give beta 2 agonists like albuterol. That'll drive the potassium in the cells and diuretic. Cerebral edema can result after head trauma. You can use hypertonic saline of 3% to decrease intracranial pressure. And you can also use hyperventilation, mannitol, diuretics, and surgical decompression. Neurogenic diabetes insipidus can also be caused by head trauma, and it causes a deficiency in vasopressin or ADH. Sepsis. So when you recognize a patient with sepsis, antibiotics should be initiated as soon as possible after recognition. 
and within one hour for both sepsis and septic shock. Delays in administration of antibiotics can be associated with increased mortality and end organ damage. Um, patients with septic shock can be clinically identified by having both of two criteria. So a vasopressor requirement to maintain a mean um, a map of 65 and then serum lactate level greater than two in the absence of hypovolemia. Um, so treatment should include fluid resuscitation with IV crystalloid and then transfuse if their hemoglobin is less than seven and then um, vasopressors are second line after fluid resuscitation. All right, let's talk about happen. transplantation. Eligible organ donors. Um, so this comes up in the context of our exam and VCA as well as all of the solid organ transplants. So contraindications include no consent from a parent or guardian if the patient is underage or less than 18. Um, Creutzfeldt-Jakobson syndrome or disease, the prion disease, diseases are contraindications and then metastatic cancer. We were tested on um, which kind of different options of these were contraindications. And that was mainly to point out that HIV is no longer a contraindication. So HIV and hep C positive organs are um, actually commonly donated these days. And that is not a contraindication. Transplant rejection. I swear to God, this is the year that I'm going <laughs> It hasn't happened yet, but it's time. <laughs> they love to test a different timelines oh, yeah. of mm -hmm. rejection and we're going to get it. We're going to well, do it. This is the year. Okay. So hyperacute is the fastest it's happening within minutes to hours. And this is due to antibodies that are already present. So it's a humoral response mediated by antibodies or B cells um, that are already present in the host at the time of transplantation. So this is like immediate accelerated is fast, but not as fast. This is occurring within days of transplant. So within the second to fifth day after transplant, and it's also a form of hyperacute re rejection, and that results from pre-sensitization, but not pre-present antibodies, just pre-sensitization to donor tissue antigens. Acute, just plain old acute, um, is regulated by the activation of T cells. We are tested on that a lot. And that can occur within the first six months and that's characterized by short-term organ dysfunction and cutaneous or mucosal manifestations. I think we were tested on this, like there was a rash over a hand um, and there was also like some- Like a mucosal lesion or something. Mucosal lesion. And, and so that's within- Acute months, cutaneous. Acute cutaneous. Acute cutaneous, if you will. Wow, I love that. See, I'm telling you this- Think year. of me when you get that question right. <laughs> Chronic rejection is antibody mediated. So this is different. Acute is T cells and it has a T in it. Chronic, I don't have any corresponding letters, but it doesn't have a T. So it's antibody and cell mediated. And it's usually indolent and progressive arterial sclerosis and fibrosis of the transplanted organ. So you can think about this when they do like flow studies from the vasculature to any given solid organ, or if they're doing um, flow studies like a CTA to the hand, um, you're going to see progressive arterial sclerosis. And this is on the order of months to years. Graft versus host disease. This typically is only going to occur in bone marrow or stem still transplants. Um, so it's very much tested in that capacity or in that context. This is a cellular response caused by activation of the transplanted graft immune cells by the recipient cells. And I just think about it as like the 
donor immune system attacking the host. Which is why it really only happens in bone marrow transplants. All right, last topic today, trauma, drama. Trauma, drama. Trauma, drama. Um, so we get a lot of questions about trauma and pregnancy for some reason, not really sure why. Always perform a fast and abdominal ultrasound. And then you'll want to do four hours of electronic fetal monitoring in patients over 23 weeks of gestation. You definitely want to make sure you determine their ROGAM, rhesus factor, their RH status. If they are negative, mother should be given ROGAM within 72 hours to prevent sensitization. And then anyone over 32 weeks, you want to log roll the patient onto their left side, left side to prevent compression of the vena cava by the gravid uterus while they're laying on their back. For giving medications in pregnancy when you're on trauma specifically, um, local anesthetic is okay. Avoid benzos if you can, and then opioids are actually okay as well. In RRT situations like a rapid response, this is created. This team was created to intervene in the care of a greater number of hospitalized patients at an earlier stage of clinical deterioration. So its goal is to prevent catastrophic events. RRTs can be called for hypotension, rapid heart rates, respiratory distress, or altered consciousness. And then the code team is separate and responds to cardiac arrest, respiratory arrest, and airway obstruction. And some basic, some BLS, ACLS facts. PEA is pulse electrical activity. You want to give epinephrine one milligram every three to five minutes. Don't stop CPR to administer the drugs. And you don't need to shock PEA. Just keep giving epi and the drugs. CPR should be resumed immediately after shock delivery without pausing for rhythm or pulse check. And then do two minutes of CPR followed by a rhythm check and then more CPR. High quality chest compressions include 100 to 120 beats a minute and five centimeters of sternal decompression, sternal compression, sorry, and a rate of 30 to two or 10 breaths a minute, 30 compressions and two breaths. Confirmation of brain death is the absence of brainstem reflexes. This is the absence of corneal reflexes, respiratory rate, nystagmus on caloric testing and absence of a mild cough or gag during tracheal manipulation. Additionally, in order to diagnose brain death, you have to have a cause of brain death. Specifically in craniosynostosis cases, we are tested on the amount of blood loss in those cases. So in the craniosynostosis cases, you can give TXA, which inhibits conversion of plasminogen to plasmin, so it'll decrease blood loss. Tension pneumothorax is a clinical diagnosis of tachypnea, dyspnea, and JVD. You'll also see tracheal deviation to the opposite side on an x-ray and hypotension and hyperresonance on the affected side. If the patient is hypotensive and tachypneic, treat it with needle decompression at the second intercostal space, followed by a chest tube insertion, but decompress them first. Theoretically speaking, attention to pneumothorax is when there's injury to the lung and air leakage into the pleural space that can't escape. And so each breath makes it worse. So they will feel worse and worse as they keep breathing. Um, and then the last thing on our trauma drama checklist here, lower extremity trauma, you want to give early, you want to give antibiotics really early on within three hours. It has been shown to be the most important determinant of infection prevention after traumatic open fractures of the lower extremity. It's more important even than time to wash out the severity of the trauma, et cetera. And in contaminated wounds, you want to give a cephalosporin plus or minus grim negative coverage in contaminated wounds. That was so much fun. That was a lot of just random facts. Let's see. Do we have some some quick important facts? Yeah, we do. It's fast okay. facts time. Fast facts time. So 
we have five fast facts from today's lecture. Um, these things all come up all the time. So make sure you remember the maximum doses for lidocaine plain, three megs per kg, lido with epi, seven megs per, per kg. Mm -hmm. The tap block is an injection between the internal oblique and transversus abdominis. You want to inject in the triangle of pettit, the iliac crest, latissimus, and external oblique triangle. Malignant hyperthermia. This is caused by the fluorine gases and or succinylcholine. They like to test both. You want to treat with dantrolene and then removal of these agents if applicable. Lidocaine toxicity, also commonly tested. These symptoms that are most commonly reported on the test are dizziness, tinnitus, metallic taste, and perioral paresthesias. They can also have hypotension, bradycardia, and you want to treat that with lipid emulsion. And then conscious sedation, your best combo that we were tested on last year is midazolam and fentanyl due to its rapid onset and ease of reversal. Love those facts. Wow. Thanks, Tori. Thanks for listening, everybody. Make sure you visit our website and share these things with your friends who are also studying for the in-service. It's coming. It's coming. We're like, on our way there. Quick hits is almost over. So oh, sure that doesn't that. scare you. <laughs> I don't know what will. As a plastic surgeon with a unique vision for each patient, the more options you have at your fingertips, the better. Natrell is one of the portfolios available to you. To learn more, visit natrellsurgeon.com.